Why, hello there. Come in. You've caught us in a moment of Christmas repose. Please, sit down. Join us. Won't you enjoy some applets and cutlets? A crisp Harry and David apple? Or try some of this delicious Willamette Valley spiced wine? It's all part of our Christmas tradition here at Kick-Ass Oregon History. You're just in time. We're unwrapping your Christmas present. This year, Kick-Ass Oregon History presents A Child's Christmas in Exploding Wales, including excerpts read by the author, Dylan Thomas. One Christmas was so much like the other in those years around the sea town corner now. Out of all sound except the distant speaking of the voices I sometimes hear a moment before sleep. That I can never remember whether it snowed for six days and six nights when I was twelve, or whether it snowed for twelve days and twelve nights when I was six. Yes, they were all so much alike, except for that one. The one Christmas with the wail of a problem. A rotting, stinking problem on the sands of our grey Oregon beach. It is November 12th, 1970, and a big old stinking, rotting, dead whale is on a beach near Florence, Oregon. For long. This is some kick ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at orhistory.com. We profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit orhistory.com and click Donate. Gather round, children, gather round, and I shall tell you a Christmas story of old. Once upon a time, in November of 1970, a whale died. A really big whale. An 8-ton, 45-foot-long sperm whale. No one is really sure why Mr. Whale perished, but he did, and he washed up on an Oregon beach south of Florence. And he just kind of stayed there for a while. I'm dead, he thought. And so... Like any good beached whale, he began to rot. 
Years and years ago when I was a boy, and there were whales rotting on the beach in Oregon. And birds the colour of red flannel petticoats whisked past the harp-shaped hills. When we sang and wallowed all night and day in caves that smelt like Sunday afternoons. In damp front logging cabin parlours. And we chased with the jawbones of deacons the Kuvites and the bears. Before the motor car, before the wheel, before the Dutch faced horse when we rode the daft and happy hills bareback it snowed and it snowed but here a small boy says it snowed last year too I made a snowman and my brother knocked it down and I knocked my brother down and then we had tea but that was not the same snow I say our snow was not only shaken from whitewashed buckets down the sky it reeked of whale and crushed the bonnets of automobiles. At the time of our tale, the villagers of Florence, Oregon, found delight and oddity in the spectacle of the giant rotting whale. It was a curiosity, and they would come down to the shore to observe. Day after day, they would stare at the decaying and putrefying behemoth, just laying on the sand, rotting and stinking, that loathsome, disgusting whale corpse. But eventually, the smell of a decomposing, rotting whale just got to be too much for the kind people of Florence. All the Christmases rolled down towards the two-tongued sea, like a cold and headlong moon bundling down the sky that was our street. And they stop at the rim of the ice-edged, fish-freezing waves, and I plunge my hands in the snover I can find. In goes my hand into that wool-white, bell-tongued ball of holidays resting at the rim of the carol-singing sea. And out came Mr. Linman and the men of the Oregon Highway Division. Ocean beaches in Oregon were, at the time of our tale, under the purview of the Highway Division thanks to forward-thinking Governor Oswald West. So this gooey, eight-ton, messy jumble fell into the laps of some kind men from the Eugene Division office. Burial was deemed inappropriate, as it was felt that the tides would just uncover the corpse. Rendering plants refused the, um, gift offering of the remains, and it is claimed that opinions from the United States Navy were solicited. The best plan of action was deemed to be blowing it up. The highway department would place a half ton of explosives under the whale and blast it into a pink sticky goo and blow it back into the sea. Any small pieces that landed on the beach would soon be consumed by seagulls and other briny scavengers. The plan was determined to be sound, and the highwaymen got to work. Some few large highway department men sat in the front parlors without their collars, uncles almost certainly, trying their new cigars, holding them out judiciously at arm's length, returning them to their mouths, coughing, then holding them out again as though waiting for the explosion. It was a beautiful day to blow up a whale. 
The sun was shining, and there was a gentle breeze on the beach south of the Sayusla River Thursday as State Highway Division workers placed 20 50-pound cases of explosives under the 45-foot whale. An hour and 45 minutes later, the explosives were placed beneath the carcass. The spectators were moved a quarter of a mile back, and many looked through binoculars or the lenses of their cameras. Assistant Director Highway Engineer George Thornton gave the signal, and at 3.45 p.m., the plunger was pushed. Boom, 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 boom. Gonna shoot you right down. All for your feet. Take you home with me. Put you in my house. The beach literally exploded into a 100-foot-high cloud of sand, pink mist, and pieces of whale. Rather than fall toward the ocean as planned, chunks of the beast flew in every direction and began falling on spectators. The onlookers began to scream as the putrid goo and chunks of rotting blubber fell amongst them, even upon them and then they sprinted for non-existent cover in the dunes. The nauseating film covered them as they ran to their cars and drove away. The seagulls failed to materialize to clean up the disarray. The nauseous stench of the atomized, rotting whale particles was absorbed by clothes, car interiors, and even metal objects. A photographer had to retire his movie camera due to the reek. I tried cleaning it with everything, alcohol and soap and water. I even doused it with my wife's perfume, but it still smells like dead whale. The scene is hard to describe. An Oregon hippie who surveyed the spectacle may have summed it up succinctly when he stated, Unbelievable! So incredibly surreal! Kick-Ass Oregon History had a chance to sit down with Paul Lindman, who, among other things, is famous for being the news reporter on the scene for KATU News. This is Doug Kent Crispin, the resident historian of ORHistory.com, and I am sitting down with the man who actually exploded the whale, Mr. Paul Lindman. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Lindman. Doug, it's good to be with you. Um, just let me say, I didn't explode the whale. I just watched it explode. Okay? Well, and that leads to my first question. Why do people think that you were the guy that actually blew up that whale? I don't know. That that has you're, It's a good question because so many times I've had that said to me, and um uh, my new response, although I violated my own rule just now with you, is to say, yeah, I'm the guy. <laughs> it's just easier. 
We have the Challenger segment. We have Hinckley shooting Reagan. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't associate reporters with those famous segments of footage. And notice I typified the exploding whale with some whammy disasters. <laughs> uh, why do you get attributed with that explosion? And it's it's even more than that. You're as much of the event as that damn rotting whale. <laughs> well, I think because um, I, I inserted myself in the story, uh, the the times were different and television news was completely different there but we did stand-ups we did you know portions at the front and back of the story where we saw the reporter introducing what was to follow so i guess that's how i've been associated with it and who else are you going to talk to about the exploding whale not the guy who blew it up he won't even talk to me so i i guess that's how it's happened but these other news incidents you mentioned i mean it has been proven in our industry i've seen this written i don't know how many times that there is no single news story that has been watched more than that one. And I feel I have mixed feelings about that. I mean, it's kind of nice to be associated with something that uh, millions of people have now seen. But if I think back to the to the major news stories <laughs> that I think take precedence over that one, I mean, just one, the Kennedy assassination. I mean, why wouldn't people have seen more of the most telling video on that story than this one? I don't have a good answer to that, but um, it's fun to ponder and to think about. Can can you tell me, as you're walking down the beach with Doug, kind of what strikes you as you look back? What, what do you remember visually? Well, well it, it's not a visual, Doug. What struck me as soon as I opened the car door was the smell of that rotting whale. It had been there for several days. And um, it's not like if you picture arriving at a parking lot next to a beach and you're looking out at the sand on the ocean, it wasn't that situation. We had to walk over several sand hills, several dunes to get to the beach and then down the other side of the dune to get to the whale. And so from the moment we leave our car, which is maybe, I don't know, several hundred yards from from where the whale is, maybe a, a quarter to a half mile, you can hardly breathe for the smell. I mean, it just impacted us so hard. And um, so we got down to the beach, and our first motivation is to uh, find somebody to talk to about it. But we saw the thing laying there, and it was quite striking in its ugliness. And that, together with the smell, really kind of created this overwhelming feeling that something awful was happening. (laughs) We didn't know what was coming, of course. The Roseburg Blast, the poisoned eggs in the Oregon State Hospital. We recently passed a milestone of the Columbus Day storm. But for some reason, the exploding whale tops all of these other homegrown Oregon events. Why is this? Why is the exploding whale the Oregon tale? I think it's simple because we don't explode whales. We save whales. Okay, it's akin to uh, the only comparison I I can think of uh, quickly is if David Letterman, and I don't even know if he does it anymore, goes to the top of his building and throws a television set off the side and it smashes on the street. We don't do that to television sets. So not only did we blow up a whale, but we've got visual evidence of what it looks like when we do. And I think that's been compelling. And, you know, it came along. uh, Well, it didn't come along at the same time, but but here comes the Internet. And all these websites, I mean, at one time, it was on 13,000 sites. I don't know what it is now, but uh, that just keeps it alive. Paul Lindman from today is magically transported back to that beach on that day in Florence. Do you tell George Thornton of the highway department how bad this is going to go? No, uh, I had no idea. I, I thought the highway department knew what they were doing. And I feel bad for George. I've never talked to him since that day in 1970, and I've made requests through uh, ODOT and others to, to do so. 
And um, he was kind of left holding the bag. Uh, it was the start of hunting season, and the other administrators from ODOT left him in charge of that project. And the Navy later uh, indicated uh, in their review of what took place there that they didn't use too much dynamite. They didn't use enough. And our highway department is expert at blowing up road services and rock and, and, and doing construction of that type. What do they know? What does anybody know about putting dynamite under a whale that has tons of blubber uh, over sand that has water underneath it? I mean, who knows what might happen? And there is no way a a 23-year-old television news reporter is going to walk up to this highway engineer and say, hey, this isn't going to work. I did ask him in the interview, are we sure it's going to work? And and his answer was, we're reasonably sure. In your book, you state that you and cameraman Doug Brazil were not remotely interested in keeping alive the whale story beyond its initial telling on your newscast of 1970. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Well, Doug and I were having fun. We were both young. Um, we referred to ourselves as video death rangers. <laughs> and we just went from one story to the next. And it might be a, a, a huge fire with explosions at a mercury plant in northeast Portland to um, a shooting situation to uh, Governor McCall doing something. You, I mean, you name it. We were young guys in news and uh, living the, the life and enjoying it. But when you're in that kind of environment, you you develop kind of a one-day memory. I mean, it's what's happening today. It's not what happened yesterday. And while the whale was really different and unique and something weird to see, um, I think both of us, while we didn't discuss it, we just, well, that's we did that. Now what's next? And um, to have it keep coming back on us because people immediately started requesting copies of our film and, and whatnot was just a bother. I mean, we're about today's news. We're not about what we did last week or last November. And um, so, you know, maybe we were short-sighted, but I think to a certain degree, a lot of people are short-sighted. They're, they're doing what's happening now, not, not what happened before. So the first time you see that segment, even with your astounding alliteration, which I personally love, uh, you had no idea that there would be interest in the story beyond that segment. None. And I'm embarrassed. I, thank you for the compliment. I'm embarrassed about the alliteration, which my four sons are constantly repeating to me just to drive me nuts. Um, but it was a different time. News at that time, Huntley Brinkley, uh, Walter Cronkite, it was deadly serious business. And we didn't play around with the news. And I played around a little bit with that script. And fortunately, media watchers over the years and, and TV journalists and, and those who teach uh, journalism have been kind to me and say the script holds up over the years. But I'm a bit embarrassed about it, especially since it's out of context and people don't realize the time we were presenting that on the air. But, um, no, I, I had no idea we would still be talking about it um, all these years later. And in your book, you kind of sound like you're about done telling this story, but you're sitting down with kick-ass Oregon history. Is this perhaps the last interview about the exploding whale? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know, it's flattering. I mean, people want to keep talking about it. I went through a period, and I kind of expressed this in the book, where, you know, leave me alone about it. But if that's what people want to talk about, it gave me the opportunity to write a book, and as you know, because you've read the book, it gave me the opportunity to write about a whole bunch of people I found to be more extraordinary than, than an exploding whale. So it was a vehicle for me. Um, the other thing, and I honestly don't remember if I if I started this before I finished the book project or not. Uh, this spring, I will go back to Italy to a, a graduate uh, business program uh, called SIMBA, the Consortium Institute of Mis- uh, Management and Business Analysis. Um, It's a consortium of 50 American universities which send students for uh, international study in Italy uh, for one year 
I've gone there twice. I'm going back a third time. I lecture them because they were using my book as a uh, um, as a textbook in their international problem solving class. And so it gets me to Europe every few years. It gets me a very nice honorarium, an all-expense-paid trip. That's how the whale has really paid off for me. So I especially don't mind talking about it. <laughs> a little bit more than the $105 or whatever it was that you yeah, were compensated, right? Yeah, and, and uh, people, you know, had we somehow licensed that thing, Doug Brazil and I, the cameraman, the photographer, um, I suppose we could have made a lot of money off it. But here's how good a businessman I am. At one point... Doug came to me, and this was just before he left Channel 2, and I would leave Channel 2 shortly thereafter, and said, look, the station is sick of dealing with this thing. Let's give them $5,000 for the rights, and you and I will own it. And I said, Doug, I'm not going to pay $2,500 uh, my share for something the entire world has already pirated. That would just be stupid of me. Well, about a month later, uh, Channel 2 sold it to NBC's World Most Famous Videos for $25,000 for a one-time use. So that shows you how good a business mind I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mr. Lindman, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, you know, we've, you've kind of we've taken one of the most kick-ass stories in Oregon's past, and we've presented it here on our podcast. And I think essentially it's the death of our podcast. From now on out, it's going to be kick-ass Josephine County quilts or something like that. I mean, <laughs> how, how can you top this? But Well, whatever you do, Doug, just remember uh, what I always tell people on this subject. Whatever you do, have a blast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Been beat up and battered round Been sent up and I've been shot down You're the best thing that I've ever found Handle me with care Reputation's changeable Situation's tolerable Bring out the tall tales now that we told by the fire as the gaslight bubbled like a diver. Ghosts wooed like owls in the long nights when I dared not look over my shoulder. Animals lurked in the cubbyhole under the stairs where the gas meter ticked. And I remember that we went singing carols once when there wasn't the shaving of a moon to light the flying streets. Always on Christmas night there was music an uncle played the fiddle, a cousin sang of wails and woe, and another uncle sang, think about your troubles. It was very warm in the little house. Auntie Hannah, who had got onto the Salal wine, sang a Led Zeppelin song about Moby Dick, and then another in which she said her heart was like a whale's heart. And then everybody laughed again, and then I went to bed. Looking through my bedroom window, out into the moonlight and the unending smoke-colored snow, I could see the lights in the windows of all the other houses on our hill and hear the music rising from them up the long, steadily falling night. I turned the gas down. I got into bed. I said some words to the close and holy darkness, and then I slept. Thank you.
Merry Christmas, dear ass kickers, and to our Jewish listeners, Happy Hanukkah, baby. Thank you for listening, and be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Special thanks to Paul Lindman for his interview, and Court Weber for helping us to arrange it. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Check out our website at orhistory.com. There, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. You can sign up for our exciting Oregon history events, pick up Oregon history merchandise, and read of our adventures as Oregon's rock and roll historians. You can also support the podcast. Go to orhistory.com and click donate. Follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. You can also like us on the Facebook. Our email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. We have a few events coming up this holiday season. Thursday, December 20th at 7.30 p.m. at the Jack London Bar, Kick-Ass Oregon History is proud to present The Hanging of Danford Balch, a gift to Portland. Our ghost host, myself, Andy Lindbergh, will be in attendance, along with historian Doug Kank Crispin, as we chat about the tragic tale of the first man hanged, or first hung man, in Oregon, and why his murderous act could have resulted in perhaps the greatest gift to Portlanders. Then, on December 22nd at 7 p.m., it's A Nuclear Christmas at the Mission Theater. We'll view the film A Day Called X, about 1950s Portland getting nuked, and Stanley Kubrick's classic Dr. Strangelove, with resident historian Doug Kank Crispin discussing civil defense in Oregon. That event is $6 in advance. Follow the link at our website. It's $8 at the door. January 31st, 2013, join us on our Treasure and Loot Double Decker Bus Tour, co-sponsored by our kick-ass friends at Double Decker PDX, Double Mountain Brewery, and Eastside Distilling. We will visit several locations of fabled Oregon treasure, stop in a few watering holes, and conduct a drunken scavenger hunt as we enjoy adult malted beverages, all for less than $30. The only history tour in Portland that could make you fucking rich. Visit our website, orhistory.com, and pick up a ticket today. So, join us December 20th at 7.30 p.m. at the Jack London Bar for the hanging of Danford Balch. 
can sign up on the website to be on the treasure tour. Just don't try to follow Mr. Kate Crispin's treasure trail. It's exactly what you're thinking it is. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. Guitar that's made in Hong Kong. <laughs> 